reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Well, this is a program, as uh, many of you, if you've been following me for uh, quite some time, know that uh, it started uh, focusing on radical Islam, political Islam, the way to create a coordinated strategy for our national security. And slowly, this program, as many, evolved into looking at big pictures, looking at how an American Muslim patriot, how a doctor, former naval officer, and all of us together can contribute to the conversation. We find ourselves in a crisis this month regarding the battle against this novel coronavirus. Is it simply the flu? Is it beyond that? Is it going to bring countless deaths that could have been prevented? Sort of the two extremes of a conversation that we need to have. And I hope, as your friendly former naval officer, doctor, and private practice, internal medicine, primary care. I can bring a little of my own perspective. I I don't claim to have a monopoly on the truth or to understand all of the nuances, Uh, but uh, I think as somebody on the front lines in treating coronavirus patients, uh, patients with respiratory illness, patients with the sniffles all the way to pneumonia in the past few weeks to my 25 years in private practice, I think there's something I can I can contribute to this conversation. I want to first thank, as we did last week and the week before, first and foremost, my colleagues, those in primary care, first responders, nurses, medical assistants, ER docs, all my medical colleagues and others running towards the virus, towards the hospitals, towards the ERs, as others are socially distancing, isolating, and otherwise We couldn't do this without you. It reminds us of the heroism of the American public, of the global communities that care more about others than they do about themselves. We cannot get through things like this without you. And hats off to you, and hopefully this too will pass. And if it does with the least amount of death, it'll be thanks to all of you. We are in a process, though, I think similarly to what I've talked about before when it comes to terrorism, of asynchronous warfare. There's a two-week delay often in knowing where the spikes are, where the peaks are, population-wise, individual-wise, symptom-wise. Patients not only take anywhere from 5 to 12 days to manifest infection, then after they get infected, another 5, 12 days to figure out what the peak of their illness is. Will it be pneumonia? Will it be respiratory insufficiency? respiratory failure, or other things, God forbid. So this is an asynchronous warfare, this time against the virus. But we have to make sure that, as many have said, the cure is not worse than the disease. The process that we use does not rip us apart. And I have to tell you, first let's start simply with terminology. I know that the the medical community has begun to educate folks on what herd immunity is. And we've talked about social distancing, quarantining. Quarantining is where you are, believe you might be infected or have the risk of being infected, so you stay locked up without any human contact at home, in a room or elsewhere. 
social distancing, they believe prevents and decreases the rapidity of spread so that people aren't packed in as sardines. They stay at least six feet apart. I want to stop there and pause for a second. The term social distancing. Why are we calling it social distancing? Shouldn't it be physical distancing? You know, I thought that uh, in this environment, the the millennials, those who have their face pasted, directed at their phone, at their screens, at their tablets, 24-7 while awake, would shine in this, would find a way to maintain emotional closeness while being physically distanced. And yet, I can tell you, talking to teens and others, they're struggling. They're realizing that despite some of the dysfunction that we've had over the last decade with the evolution of social media and some of the communicative or incommunicative dysfunction of decreased actual human contact as we communicate with little pictures of our face repeatedly on Snapchat or we communicate in Twitter or elsewhere in 140 or 280 characters or Instagram, Facebook, and all this asynchronous communication rather than synchronous conversation, they're realizing that this physical distancing, stay-at-home orders as they've seen in California, New York, and elsewhere, doesn't work with their social contacts that somehow the physical closeness was necessary. It was still part of who they are, part of their community, their friends, their cliques, their social support system, that there needed to be a physical closeness to it, that Skype chats, FaceTime chats help when you're at home trying to study and other things. But I'm hearing from so many millennials, and as all of you I'm sure are, that they're getting a whole new appreciation on while they were gathered together and often staring at their phone and having choppy, incoherent conversations because they're distracted. They needed the physical closeness. And this isolation is actually frustrating them beyond no end, and they're finding unnatural. And to me, that's a good sign. That's a good sign that a lot of the things that we saw with our community, our nation, our democracy beginning to fragment, that when they're forced to to sort of hyperbolize, exaggerate some of the behaviors that led to our emotional distancing, which became a complete dependence on technology in order to prevent physical closeness in meetings and gatherings, that it didn't work that the connection was lost. So that physical connection was necessary. The gatherings were necessary for humanity, but we were beginning to separate. So I wish we hadn't used the term social distancing. I wish that that somehow as this rolled out in the last month, we had actually called it physical distancing because it's really about staying physically apart, but not emotionally, not socially as a society, as a community. And I can't tell you how much that resonates with the work I've been trying to do in counter-radicalization of theopolitical ideologies that 
groups that, for example, Muslims that immigrate and come into Western societies that are secular liberal societies, they continue within their cliques, within the ghettoization of often, sadly, that they, they bring with them the, the construct that Islam is not only a faith, but a, a political ideology, a societal ideology that not only includes mosque worship and community prayer and holidays and faith practice, but also includes legal national practice that uh, uh, pushes back against secularism, against the hedonistic West, and pushes forth Sharia interpretations, and actually creates a separatist mentality. Now, you may be scratching your head, what does this have to do with social distancing or physical distancing? Well, it has a lot to do with it. If you aren't assimilating, aren't integrating into a community, you're remaining emotionally and socially distant even though you might be physically proximal. You might be praying shoulder to shoulder. But if you're telling from the pulpits, if you're telling from the legal interpretations that the legal system you live in isn't yours, it's theirs, it's us versus them. We are hated, We are. they are bigots, they are against us. That creates a social distancing. So I think in this opportunity of stress, be it health, be it national, be it economic. Think about this as we are holed up in our houses, trying to prevent the acute rapid spread of disease, but knowing that the virus will spread. No matter how long we stay at home, the virus will continue to be out there just to be spread slower so that the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. But... I think one of the common themes, one of the common threads running through all of these issues, be it terrorism, be it political cohesion, be it the divisiveness in Washington, is what is a healthy emotional and social proximity? What is the method in which we can use social media telecommunications, be it by video or elsewhere, to maintain emotional and social proximity even when we are physically apart. And I think that that proximity cannot simply be by pleasantries and platitudes, but not only by tolerance. Remember, tolerance is saying that, well, I think that my idea is better, but I'll give you your freedom to believe. But rather pluralism, which is we might have equal access to the truth. So that pluralism is not only about religious pluralism, but it is about the right to the truth. Who's correct? Whose data is correct? Whose data is about death and morbidity and mortality and spread? It might not only be about theopolitical debates, but about epidemiological debates that can swing whether we completely stifle our economy for two weeks, four weeks. Huge movements now are calling for six weeks of a lockdown of America because this is the end of the world in the spread of the virus. And I'm not trying to 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 minimize that, but to say that if you disagree with that, it doesn't mean you want people dead. You may respect life just as much in a pluralistic way of ideas, but believe that that cure is far worse than the disease. But believe that that is an overreaction 
not based on true science, but based on conjecture and whims that may be too much to afford. And yes, we may all make mistakes. Part of pluralism is also believing, if you look at our Muslim reform movement, pluralism is about mistakes. It's about believing that, well, we as Muslims believe that this is our route to God, but we don't believe we have a monopoly on that route, that we have an exclusivity on that route, that we don't reject or believe that we have the right to devalue anyone else's path to God or to say that they don't have a path to heaven. That's what real pluralism is. And yet I see, let's talk this week about the numbers that came out. This week all of a sudden you saw as America crossed 100,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus, you saw the so-called news media prove without a shadow of the doubt that they are not only in the business of news, but they are in the business of propaganda, academic malpractice, and pushing the narrative that they've predetermined. Because when you put at the headline of a newspaper, New York Times, MSNBC, that America now leads the world in coronavirus cases, That is is like looking at the status of the health of a patient through a narrow microscope of a few cells on their gluteal region. I'm sorry. The, the total number of cases for any scientist that quickly, quickly looks at it, you saw Paul Krugman this week tweeting that America is a, is a disaster because of the number of cases that we've seen and that this is a sign of all of the irrationality and poor leadership of President Trump. And yet you had Stanford Medical School professors and academicians and epidemiologists like John Ioannidis, who gave a wonderful one-hour review of all of these issues. When he was asked about the politics, he said, listen, I'm not a politician. I'm not going to go there. But a lot of these decisions need to be balanced and there's no sign on either side that people know exactly what they're talking about. But we have to look at things as quickly as possible and look at the last two weeks as academics and pragmatists and not as emotional folks that say that this is... Because once you confirm and you criticize what the others do... For example, he wouldn't even criticize the World Health Organization, which I think deserves a lot of criticism because of how little appropriate critique they're giving of China. And yet, Dr. Yanides was right. We still haven't even gotten most of the data down right. Maybe in three, four years, once we look back and assess and you have actual studies of metadata, meta-analysis done, which is research about research, we can then make some conclusions about what was driving WHO recommendations. But he thinks it's premature, and right now, we should face the things that can save the more lives as we move forward in this decision-making. But the Krugmans of the world, the Hillary Clintons of the world, Hillary Clinton put this grotesque tweet out this week that said, President Trump wanted America first, and now that we've crossed the barrier of the most cases in the world, out of the 600,000 plus, we are over 100,000, and we are America first. 
Congratulations, she said. Seriously? That's not only grotesque, but it is the reality of propaganda. There is no reality there. Because any academician, any physician will tell you that simple gross numbers of cases is related to the deployment of test kits, the deployment of, I mean, I actually believe it's far, far more numbers that have been infected because we're not testing randomly the population. We're testing those in which the test result will affect our care for the most part. Obviously, there's a ton of people initially that got tested that didn't need it, et cetera. Now, as we see, many of the, the, the test centers that open are having to close because there's overwhelming results. But the United States also is far, far more transparent in the testing that we're doing than many of these countries. So when you look at total numbers, you have to look at the morbidity, mortality of those numbers to tell what they mean necessarily, and the death rate and the intubation rate, the ICU rate of that number to figure out if America is the worst, as the far left or the Krugmans and Hillary Clintons of the world seem to want to hyperbolize. So one is the the illness rate of that number, and two is the true denominator in the populations across the world. You think China's reporting actually? Iran's actually reporting in the cases that they're giving to the world data collection services? Do we actually think that there's some honesty here there about the numbers or that they're deploying test kits appropriately? How about compared to places like Taiwan where they enacted immediate social distancing, physical distancing, only to find only to find that they prevented significant amount of illness. That doesn't mean that they didn't have cases. It just means that they didn't need to test large populations because they had a, a far more learned approach initially because of the proximity to SARS back in 08 and 09 that, that now they responded in a much more functional way. It's interesting talking about propaganda from who? The World Health Organization, the BBC reporter, was asking a WHO expert about this, and repeatedly he refused to compare Taiwan to China's response and transparency of their reporting. And Ben Shapiro talked about it this week, tweeted about it, saying this shows that when you have a World Health Organization whose funding is significantly dependent on tyrannies like China, that it will not be objective in its response and will often not be helpful in immediately showing real-time modifications in its recommendations to the world, which may have led to some of its delay in describing this as a pandemic and the reality of whether China has stopped spreading. I mean, initially they opened the theaters this week and now reclosed them. So the truth is still out there. And by the way, Japan and Korea have not had anywhere close to the U.S.-style shutdowns that we've seen, and yet their case numbers have begun to go down, telling you that the herd immunity effect is probably far more important 
while you prevent some of the clusters of areas overwhelming those areas of healthcare system overwhelm overwhelming cases than actually shutting down the entire economy and i think time as we go back will show that some of these countries variable responses will need to be employed in the future as we develop a more robust pandemic strategy strategy against pandemic but i have to tell you the 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 way that the media reported this new number that we crossed this week the largest numbers of cases are in the united states is just so false it's not that hard we don't have to be epidemiology epidemiological experts to know just like when you talk about azithro and and hydroxychloroquine Okay, patients got better anecdotally with those two meds, and if somebody's getting sick on a vent or nearing the need to do a ventilator, maybe it is worthwhile trying those two old medications, an antibiotic and a basically a chemo drug that's used for lupus, etc. It's not harmless. It's worth trying, but that's not science. That's anecdotal. One of the most beautiful blessings of Western society is the ability of us to develop rigorous scientific method. From Koch's postulates to scientific method that says we can't assume that correlation equals causation. That when you see things that happen to happen at the same time, that that means one causes the other and one is the effect of the other. You need to prove it. You need to have studies. And Ian Edes, Dr. Ian Edes from Stanford said it best. He said, imagine if we could get the 10 prime ministers of Western countries or any countries together and say, okay, you five countries do this and you five countries do this and we're going to double blind it. It's impossible. But that's how science is. So right now we're using our best guesses. But to say that one team, one country, one state knows how to do it better than the other is just it's just fictitious. We have to find measured approaches and be willing to accept mistakes on either side. Mistakes that only reveal themselves to mistakes as we learn as we go. So you can't have a political agenda in which you want to basically focus on recriminations afterwards rather than the fact that there is always a learning curve. Which gets me back to the first part of what I wanted to focus on in this podcast is are we emotionally distant? Are we partisanly, if, there, if that is a word, are we in a partisan fashion so far divided that it's all about recriminations? Or are we finding the threads that keep us together, whether we're physically close or not, so we are not emotionally distant and we are not nationally distant? Distant between states, distance between communities and neighborhoods. Because I have to tell you, Regardless of what the enemy is, if it's a, a germ or an ideology, it will rip us apart within a few years if we don't have the cohesion of who we are based on principles, based on ideas that will always be on top of the other ones, prioritized over the other ones, being humanity, being human rights, being freedom, liberty, and we say, you know what, there will be prices we will pay for those, but this is what makes us American. 
we're reporting med- better and 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 mobilizing and and deploying test kits faster. So yeah, our total number of cases might be more than anywhere reported. That, that doesn't mean that our population is sicker or that our leadership is worse. It just means we're more transparent. And we're still trying to learn. And it looks like our morbidity, mortality rate is still lower than most with barely a 1% mortality rate. Of the ones reported, which is probably far, far less since we're only testing the sicker patients. And yet the cohesion of this emotional distancing and political one-upsmanship or the lack of cohesion is showing that it's really more about recrimination of either side than it is about moving us forward so we can get our economic engine back, our health back, our hospitals not overwhelmed, and moving forward. So we need to be emotionally close, socially close, but physically distant, using reason so that we can come together in times of crisis. The last thing I wanted to talk about was, as, as a not only as a primary care doc, but I've been a bioethicist for, for 20 years doing hundreds of consultations at times in which principles are conflicted and you try to find those areas of right and wrong for a family. And now a lot of these conversations we had in the past are beginning to be be had nationally as areas that aren't able to replenish the resources quick enough in order to deal with all the patients in an equal way. And those resources include not only the physical, mechanical resources of ventilators and protective equipment and masks and uh, medical supplies, etc., since our supply chains appeared to not have the redundancy necessary to deal with the huge spike that we're seeing, especially in areas like New York City. But even beyond that, so that ends up with this discussion about ethical dilemmas. CMS and government put out this week a reminder that doctors, providers, healthcare institutions should not discriminate based on race, disabilities, and other issues related to vulnerable populations. And you have things like the Utah guidelines and guidelines that Pittsburgh put out also separate and a, a little different about how to deal with pandemics and make choices about triage. And this is being put together rapidly across the country with people a lot more experience in this than myself. But I do think it's worth having a conversation from my perspective with you about some of the issues that we should be contemplating and understanding as a society, as a nation, as a state, when it comes to these things. So as some people say that there are rationing decisions going to be made, does that make them heartless? No. It's how we triaged as a Navy doc. It's how we triaged on the battlefield when things were limited. Uh, When you decide how you grade or stage people in battlefield triage, 
There's this. There's the groupings of one, two, three, four. Four being it would not be wise to take the resources to get them off the field. One being the ones that would be most able to be saved, etc. And who knows how those stages have evolved since I was in the Navy. But bottom line is that there's a, a an important and rational way to do battlefield medicine. But that's in the battlefield. There are issues you might take into account in, in third world countries where resources are limited, skill sets and personnel are limited, etc. But in the United States, should we be having this conversation? Is it moral? Is it ethical? In the in the most in the wealthiest country in the world for us to be having this type of conversation? Are we beyond that? So what I've always thought when I've counseled folks about ethical ramification of decisions they make at the bedside. One of the bioethical principles, there's four basic ones, used to be called the Georgetown Mantra. It's evolved now as we've gotten into this era of resource utilization. And it's evolved to, I think, some of the most extreme, not extreme, but probably poignantly painful conversations that you saw from, for example, Ezekiel Emanuel, who wrote a piece in the Atlantic saying after the age of 75, he did not want to be coded. Well, as much as I disagree with that, sort of shows you how when government starts paying for things, they have a right to decide who they pay for and who they don't. And this is why free market medicine makes more sense, which is when you have skin in the game, you have more right to decide how your own dollars will be spent. And that's why we have co-pays, co-insurances, all that kind of stuff is try to get some people to have skin in the game. But at the end of the day, if you get beyond your deductible, et cetera, you still don't have skin in the game. And insurances have to end up denying things. And you feel like you've lost your rights because you're not paying for it. So in this pandemic discussion of bioethics, I think we have to be rigorous and putting a firewall between the macro healthcare in which a institution which might have 20, 30, 40 ventilators or 100, let's say, and so many ICU beds. So an institution can triage what criteria it will use first, second, third, until it covers everybody. And those criteria should not be based on things that are immutable like race, color, etc., I wouldn't put age in that list because that's not immutable. Age and immune status are clearly inversely proportional. So therefore, you do have a higher risk as your age gets older. So that's not an immutable thing. That's actually a medical risk factor. So as they develop criteria, the bedside docs should not be deciding, oh, this guy seems sick or he's old. I'm not going to take care of him first. There should be a, a more rigorous... So look at organ transplants. You have a whole UNOS, UNOS system that looks at scoring, etc. And they determine those through huge conversations that evolve year to year, decade to decade, about who should be transplanted and who shouldn't. And that conversation... is done on a macro level, not at the bedside of a single patient that might be waiting for a liver or a heart. Because when you're that patient's doctor and you've been taking care of your patient in end-stage heart failure and you want to get him or her a heart, 
It would be unethical. It would be un-American to then say that, well, here's my other patient. I think I'm going to pick this patient over that one. There has to be criteria that are applied so that when you turn to the family or you turn to that patient, you say, you know what, you didn't meet these criteria. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. I don't make the criteria. It's done by a large consortium of providers and others that have determined these things. And if we violate them, then we start creating bias and an unethical approach of arbitrariness, which is exactly what happens in tyrannies. And I think this is what has to happen in the pandemic response is to reassure our populations that your bedside doctors will continue to advocate for you at their strongest level. And some will have to be having a conversation about DNR, not because the hospital doesn't want to take care of them, but because your doctor feels that it's futile to code your loved one. There was articles this week about uh, uh, unilateral DNRs made by two doctors and an ethicist or two doctors and a palliative care doc, and that somehow the family wouldn't be asked. Now, I think some of the comments uh, as uh, um, edited from ethicists like Scott Halpern and others and written in some of the mass media, I think, were taken out of context. For example, one of the quotes said from Dr. Halpern, I believe, who's a a well-respected ethicist, said he said that, We're not going to code a dead patient. And somehow it was referred to the dead patient being a COVID patient. That was at the context of a conversation which he said sometimes if in order to get protected appropriately, it'll take 90 seconds to get the protective gear on as the patient's flatlined. And you don't expect doctors to run in without masks, without protective gear, and start coding somebody that includes secretions and blood and everything running all over, which would almost confirm that they're going to get infected if they haven't been already. So the point is, is if those patients are just getting into the hospital and are pretty healthy, that 90 seconds, they probably might survive. But if they're end stage with ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and and, and maxing out on ventilator parameters, coding them might not be wise and would be likely be futile, let's say. And again, I'm not the intensivist, but I'm, I'm simply trying to say that these are some of the things that would always play into the decision of whether you recommend DNR status or not, do not resuscitate status or not. So families and the doctors in the ICU can have these conversations with the surrogates without needing to say that, well, we're just arbitrarily making a decision that your loved one does not get a ventilator or should not be coded. It can still be made on a case-by-case basis, and we still need to honor that firewall between a systemic or systematic criteria in which limited resources are made. Now, there's no evidence anywhere that they've had to make these kind of discussions and decisions, rather. They're getting close. As I follow some of the press conferences in New York and elsewhere and read some of the chatter online and discussion groups, uh, they're getting close. And maybe they have made them in some places, but I hope and pray that we do not change the premise of Western medical care based in reason and based in individual rights over the collective. Yes, individual. How can you say that in today's, in this pandemic about individual rights over the collective? Well, what I'm talking about is at the bedside, 
Just as we had the arguments that, oh, the Patriot Act wasn't rational or not, and yet every one of us, as much as we supported some changes necessary in legal protections of our country and our citizens, we never felt that we should sacrifice privacy rights because of a sense that somehow the terrorists and the militants We're going to win unless we changed our First Amendment and our Constitution. And yes, many of us were very hawkish on the approach to the ideology of Islamism, etc., but that hawkishness did not mean that we were sacrificing privacy rights nor religious freedom rights or other things. And I think similarly, in the bigger picture, at the bedside, you can advocate for your patient and still hold dear to the to the American legal and healthcare system of the protection of the individual to every means, especially the most vulnerable. But then you get to an obstacle that might be a system that just doesn't have the resources right now to deal with it. And those resources are sometimes filtered by formularies for medications, by studies for uh, um release of of research medications or by the limitation of PPE where if we don't have enough protective gear then we can't expect doctors to rush in to take care of somebody then they still do some of them but that uh, listen I I don't believe based on what I've read so far that uh, COVID is like Ebola hemorrhagic aggressive quickly fatal virus or a bioweapon, some think it is. I respect those opinions. This seems to be, as Dr. Ioannidis talks about in his perspectives on pandemics, if you look up the Stanford interview of him. But these numbers are important to balance and understand and I want to end on this. How many times when we talk about radical Islam, I said, well, what's the bandwidth? We're not even balancing the bandwidth of discussion of Islam with any Muslims that are against the radicals, against the radicalization process uh, that that leads from nonviolent to violent political Islam, that the separatist ideology, etc. We didn't get, we were getting one narrative, which is if you even associate or link any discussion of terrorism with Islam, you're an Islamophobe and that entire de- development of a word. And again, we're seeing that the, the, the huge hyperbolic economic shutdown now that is getting to the point of a tipping point in which if it gets beyond one, at definitely two payrolls, the shockwaves economically will take five years, if not more, to get out of. This is what I'm told. And you'll see it as unemployment... Uh, uh, um, requests have have exponentially gone over 4 million they're going over more so there's a price we're paying to cure this disease and is that price adequate and I'm concerned about the bandwidth that's being devoted to a balanced conversation on this I don't think that the bandwidth is shared with naysayers and prosayers of shutting down the economy and other issues of 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 how herd immunity can be gotten and what are ways to get that curve to get the immunity 
the quickest and safest way throughout the population. And then what about the conversation about the powers of governors that they're wielding now? Is this, is this appropriate? And rather than the recriminations, let's have a discussion of what is appropriate power in these circumstances. Same thing at the ethics at the bedside. Rather than say that we're the extreme of one, oh, they're going to let your dad die, or no, why should, why should my 80-year-old aunt uh, live when my young one's going to die too and we're having a lot of this debate? Have the debate. Discuss both sides of it. But don't extreme, and especially the folks whose paychecks are going to continue throughout this be the only ones making, conver- making the discussion. Watch the bandwidth. And last, most importantly, it's not social distancing. It's physical distancing. We emotionally should not be distant. We should become closer. Figure out now how we can as a country. I remember going to Amsterdam back in 2008, I believe, and doing a program on citizen democracy, and they were asking me about the Muslim immigrants into their community. And I asked the mayor of Amsterdam, I said, you're seeing this radicalization because of the separatists, the lack of cohesion, the lack of closeness of citizens with your with their rest of their community. I talked to Muslim kids in Islamic schools paid for by the government that hadn't talked to a non-Muslim over three or four months. So there was no integration, there was no assimilation, and no ideological accountability for cohesion. And I said, the way you you might want to, and this is something I've always believed, to bring about better assimilation is through humanities. Having them write Because po- I asked I mean, all of them, even though they hadn't talked to a non-Muslim, most of the kids did not want to go back to Morocco or Algeria, the countries that they had immigrated from into the Netherlands. Their families had, they hadn't. They were born there, but they, their families hadn't. And yet, they didn't really know why. So there needed to be poetry and literature and other things, I think, written by these kids, by others, about the beauty, about what it means to be Dutch. And I think the same thing about America is that we need to understand what it is that brings us together, not only in times of stress, but always. That we can be physically distant and not necessarily have to be emotionally distant or socially distant. I wish we had used a different term. Because physical distancing is something we do all the time when we go to work or whatever it is from one another and the people that we love. But we never, we should never, ever be emotionally distant. Think about that. God bless you all. Stay safe. And we'll get through this. This is Udi Jasper on Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. God bless. Share this on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. Find me at MZ Jasper at Facebook. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R and at Reform This Radio. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.